0: This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Today we're going to talk about the medication Propofol. Now, Propofol is used in a variety of settings in the intensive care unit, emergency department operating room, and even in the pre-hospital environment. I've talked about propofol in another podcast that I do that's for free, and it's called Pharmacology for the Prehospital Professional. I did that podcast shortly following the death of Michael Jackson. There was a lot of interest among medical providers and non-medical providers about some more information about propofol. But today I'm going to talk about about one of the complications of propofol that is potentially fatal, and often um, very few providers are aware of it, and those providers that do know something about it. Often don't know what causes it, and sometimes know very little bit about how to treat it. And what we're talking about today is what's called propofol infusion syndrome. Now, propofol has gained widespread popularity, as we mentioned, in both the induction and maintenance of general anesthesia, uh, as well as in that's care, because it's a drug that has a very rapid onset. It's got a quick recovery and really little effects. and has a very favorable neurological profile, particularly when used in the intensive care unit for the treatment of, of critically ill patients because it will decrease the cerebral metabolic rate and decrease oxygen consumption. Uh, propofol can also decrease intracranial pressure, and also it has anticonvulsant effects. So you can see that Propofol is a reasonably attractive drug. Now one thing that's important to remember about Propofol is Propofol is a drug that has no analgesic properties. Because many of these properties, propofol is routinely used for sedation of patients in intensive care units, and it's used uh, at an increasing frequency for the sedation of uh, procedures, uh, of invasive procedures, uh, from endoscopy to invasive procedures such as things as chest tubes and, and minor surgical procedures. Now, be mindful, as I already mentioned, propofol is not an analgesic. I frequently see people being transferred with propofol by era medical services. Patients who have large burns, and some of those transportation uh, durations can be typically measured in hours, particularly when patients are transported great distances by a fixed wing, which is a fancy name for saying airplane. Now, there are some significant cardiovascular uh, and respiratory depressant effects of propofol, and they're well known to most of the practitioners. But there's also what's called this propofol infusion syndrome. Propofol infusion sc- uh, syndrome was initially described by an author named Bray in 1998. They discussed their uh, um, case series in the journal Pediatric Anesthesia. It was 1998, Volume 8, pages 491 to 499. They coined this phrase propofol infusion syndrome to describe a clinical state associated with propofol infusion in children. Now, they had 18 cases at the time. Most of the patients uh, in their case series had respiratory infections. There was a high mortality rate of 83% of the children who had this propofol infusion syndrome. They define propofol infusion syndrome uh, as an acute refractory bradycardia that led to asystole, and this asystole occurred in, one, uh, in the presence of one or more of the following. A metabolic acidosis with a base deficit of greater than 10, rhabdomyolysis or myoglobinuria, lipid, uh, excuse me, lipemic plasma, uh, or a clinically enlarged liver, or a fatty liver on autopsy. The first case series of a propofol-related infusion syndrome death was reported in 1990. This was a two-year-old girl who had croup. She had been on propofol for four days and on an average infusion rate of 165 micrograms per kilogram per minute. This child developed metabolic acidosis, heart failure, hypotension, as well as hepatomegaly. It was noted early on that a lot of these cases of of propofol-related infusion syndrome in children occurred in children who had upper respiratory tract infections. And there was really no safety data on ICU propofol use. Um, And so AstraZeneca, the manufacturer of propofol, added the following statement, DIPRIVAN is contraindicated for the sedation of children of all ages with croup or epiglottitis receiving intensive care. And this was added to their prescribing information. Uh, they felt at that point that there seemed to be a causal relationship between upper respiratory tract infections and to develop this propofol-related infusion syndrome. Now, in 1996, there were an increasing uh, report of uh, propofol-related infusion syndrome also occurring in adults. The first cases, uh, perhaps, were in an adult that was 30-year-old woman. She had an upper respiratory uh, failure from asthma. She developed a severe anion gap metabolic acidosis after only being on propofol for two hours. And despite the absence of other causes of shock, such as hypoxia, hypotension, sepsis shock, diabetes, or catecholamine administration, lactic acidosis on this patient resolved within 12 hours after the propofol infusion ceased, and the patient was uneventfully extubated. But here is this patient was not on a protracted use of propofol that you may see. Um, perhaps for days in the intensive care unit. This patient was on it for only two hours. It's important to keep in mind that, as I mentioned, that some patients are transported uh, great distances, either by ground ambulance or air platforms, a a rotor wing helicopter or an airplane, and a lot of times they may be on propofol for the duration of that flight, and often that transportation time may exceed two hours, which is certainly enough time for an adult and certainly a child to develop a propofol-related infusion syndrome. The first related uh, excuse the first propofol related uh, infusion syndrome death in an adult was reported in the year 2000. It was an 18-year-old male who was on 100 to 125 mics per kilogram per minute of propofol in the ICU after the patient was involved in a motor vehicle crash. The patient developed elevated uh, creatinine kinase levels on day 3. By day five, the patient developed progressively worsening arrhythmias, culminating in pulsing electrical activity and death. His laboratory report showed metabolic acidosis, lipemia, as well as hyperkalemia. Kramer and colleagues uh, reported in Lancet in the year 2001. This is Kramer et al., Lancet, 2001, volume 357, pages 117 to pages 118. Now, they did a retrospective study uh, of adult neurosurgical ICU patients. And they found that 7 of 67 patients with head injury who received propofol from sedation showed some signs of a propofol-related infusion syndrome and died. Of importance, they found a dose-dependent relationship. No patient showed a sign of propofol-related infusion syndrome if they had been at a dose of 5 mics per kilogram per hour. At a rate of five to six milligrams per kilogram per hour, there was a 17% incidence, and at 6 uh, me, at greater than six milligrams per kilogram an hour, there was a 31% in, uh, 31% incidence of a propofol-related infusion syndrome. Now, they also proposed some criteria uh, to define this adult propofol-related infusion syndrome, and these included an age between 18 and 55 years, progressive myocardial failure with dysrhythmias, and two of the following metabolic acidosis, hyperkalemia, evidence of muscle cell destruction. Now, per the the uh, criteria uh, outlined by Kramer for uh, propofol-related infusion syndrome, there must be an absence of known causes of myocardial failure and no evidence of sepsis, no evidence of multi-organ failure, or known causes of hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, or rhabdomyolysis. Now, the presence of uh, a propofol-related infusion syndrome very considerably. Now, early signs can ex- uh, include what we've already explained over and over again. This is unexplained lactic acidosis. They can have lipemic serum as well as cardiac dysfunction, uh, or a EKG that has Burguda like EKG changes. I know what you're thinking. Braguda-like EKG changes, what is that? Well, Braguda syndrome is a hereditary... Uh, disorder, genetic disease, characterized by an abnormal EKG findings, and patients have an increased risk of cardiac death. What does the EKG look like? For that, I would refer you to an article or a textbook. There are three sub-variants of the the Paguta-type syndrome with different EKG findings, and to describe that without the use of illustrations or photographs would would be at the very least a very daunting task. If you think your patient has a propofol-related infusion syndrome and you don't feel qualified or comfortable making the diagnosis of these EKG changes, I would simply get an EKG and consult with cardiology and specifically ask point blank, are these changes present or not? There's been a lot of questioning as to whether there can be a um, subclinical propofol-related infusion syndrome or does simply the infusion of propofol Uh, induce uh, a subclinical lactic acidosis that we never uh, try to identify. And uh, there have been studies that have tried to delineate that propofol-related infusion syndrome is an idiosyncratic reaction that may occur in an all-or-none type of fashion. Now, changes in the cardiac function, as well as the aforementioned EKG changes, can develop in the absence of profound metabolic acidosis, and these can actually be the first sign of an impending cardiac electrical instability. Propofol may cause the effects, what is believed by perhaps a negative uh, sodium channel blockade uh, or by unmasking hidden uh, genetic channel defects. Later signs of profile-related infusion syndrome uh, will uh, pr- proceed to include cardiac failure, tachyarrhythmias, heart block, rhabdomyolysis, manifesting, uh, as we said already, elevated CPKs, or myoglobinuria. For those of you who don't know what myoglobinuria is, myoglobin is a key molecule in the oxygen uh, transportation of oxygen through muscle cells and when muscle cells are damaged they release this pigment myoglobin which is similar uh, in many of its structural elements to hemoglobin. Uh, How do we know myoglobin is present is that when we look at the urine, the urine is dark and tea colored. Uh, It looks similar to like diluted coca-cola. The danger in this is, is several, as that it means we have muscle destruction going on. And also when we have muscle destruction, we have elevated levels of potassium. because Potassium lives in the cells. But this myoglobin uh, is potentially toxic to the kidneys and can lead to renal failure. Now certainly there's a blood test that you can perform uh, and send it to the lab uh, and uh, measure the myoglobin. Um, but the other thing is is that if you see this pigmented urine, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty sure bet that you have myoglobin. Another quick rapid test is you send the urine for just a straight-up urinalysis. Uh, that can be turned around almost by any lab very quickly. And if you see large free hemoglobin and uh, very few red cells on the microscopic, then that's an indication that you more likely are dealing with myoglobinuria. We've already identified some patients who seem to be at higher risk for the development of a propofol-related infusion syndrome, and these are certainly patients you should be much more concerned about, one, about infusing propofol, and two, that if you are using propofol, uh, that you are very uh, uh, aware that this patient populations are at risk. And these include patients who have had a severe head injury, patients with airway infections, young age, large total cumulative dose of propofol, high catecholamine um, uh, level, which is virtually anybody who's critically ill, burned, or with a traumatic injury. Uh, patients who have elevated serum glucocorticoid levels, patients of low carbohydrate intake and high fat intake, and simply critical illness is listed as a risk factor for the development of propofol-related infusion syndrome, as well as patients who may have inborn errors metabolism of fatty acids. Now we went back and said that high levels of catecholamines may be a Um, Risk factor development of propofol-related infusion syndrome. This is felt because high levels of endogenous and exogenous catecholamines are thought to contribute to propofol-related infusion syndrome by increasing propofol requirements and by causing muscle damage. Now, the key words were there, endogenous. Endogenous catecholamines released by my adrenals caused by what? Massive trauma, uh, postoperative surgical state, critical illness. But the other word that's used in there is exogenous. Patients perhaps on vasopressors. If somebody's on levofed or or, um, uh, epinephrine or dopamine, um, if people are still using dopamine. that is potentially a risk factor for propofol. So if you have your patient who's critically injured on vasopressors, you're trying to keep them sedated in the ICU, and you're using propofol, that may be at risk for propofol-related infusion syndrome. Well, what was one of the other risk factors? Head injury. Now, if you think about your patients who have traumatic brain injuries, one of the drugs that our neurosurgeons like a lot is what? Propofol. Why? Because propofol is a turn-off, turn-on drug. They can sit there, you can keep a patient sedated, you can turn off the propofol, come by, get an assessment, uh, and put the patient back down. But that patient with traumatic brain injury has often several of those risk factors uh, which make that patient more predisposed for the development of propofol-related infusion syndrome. And perhaps we need to be looking at a different drug um, rather than using propofol for the sedation of these critically injured and ill patients. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying and don't... um, uh, overread it or overhear it. I'm not saying propofol is a bad drug. As like all drugs, drugs have potential uh, harmful effects. Perhaps the drug that has the most harmful effects is aspirin, which is the drug that is perhaps the most commonly used drug. But you need to understand, one, that this propofol-related infusion syndrome exists, It can occur rather rapidly. You don't have to be on propofol for days and days and days. But clearly, the longer you're on it, the more it seems that you're predisposed to it. And there are certain subsets of patients who are more prone to develop this potentially life-threatening complication related to the use of propofol. Now, as we said, the incidence of propofol-related infusion syndrome is not well known. There are about more than 80 incidents of patients with propofol-related infusion syndrome that have been reported as case reports with deaths in over 50% of them. Now, in 2008, a retrospective MedWatch analysis of 1,139 potential cases of propofol-related infusion syndrome were identified. Now, this was found in FONG, F-O-N-G, and colleagues. Um, the, the title of the article is Predictors of Mortality in Patients with Suspected Propofol-Related Infusion Syndrome. It's found in Critical Care Medicine, 2008, Volume 36, pages 2281 to 2287. Now, the study was conducted by pharmacists and looked for the predictors of mortality of propofol-related infusion syndrome. The predictors were found to be young age, that is, an age of less than 18, male gender, Use of vasopressors, cardiac findings, metabolic acidosis, hypotension, rhabdomyolysis, uh, and dyslipidemia. So again, looking at this particular study, risk factors at uh, young males' vasopressors. Again, uh, this includes many patients who have traumatic brain injuries uh, or multiple traumas or burns. The first large prospective study looking at the incidence of propofol-related infusion syndrome was published in 2009. This was a paper by Robertson colleagues. It was entitled Incidents of Propofol Related Infusion Syndrome in Critically Ill Adults, a prospective multicenter trial published in Critical Care Medicine in the years two thousand nine. Now this study involved critically ill patients from eleven medical centers and they were given propofol for more than twenty four hours. They were monitored at baseline and then daily for the development of a propofol related infusion syndrome. Now, again, they've used several of these definitions we've already talked about as to what is propofol-related infusion syndrome. They described here as a metabolic acidosis, cardiac dysfunction, along with one of the following, rhabdomyolysis, hypertriglycidemia, or renal failure occurring after the start of propofol. Now, 11 of 1,017 patients, or 1.1%, developed propofol-related infusion syndrome. All of the propofol-related effusion syndrome patients met criteria based on metabolic acidosis, cardiac dysfunction, and renal failure. Most developed two of the three by the first day after propofol was started. 91% of these patients were receiving a vasopressor, but of interest, only 18% received greater than 5 milligrams per kilogram per hour of propofol. So, again, earlier on in this podcast, we talked about that if you use less than 5 milligrams per kilogram per hour of propofol, you were probably okay. Well, this paper showed that um, it doesn't really provide you any real protection by using the lower dose of propofol. Now, the the mortality rate in this series. Was lower than previous reports. We said some reports have had as high as 50% for propofol-related infusion syndrome, but in this study, the mortality rate was 18%, which is still pretty high. I mean, if you think that uh, playing Russian roulette, your odds are 16% of of um, having a bullet in the chamber. So again, 18% is a substantial mortality rate. Now, the pathophysiology of propofol-related infusion syndrome seems to be complex. It involves multiple simultaneous mechanisms. But a common feature that we keep hearing over and over and over again is this cardiovascular collapse. Now, several mechanisms have been uh, put forward as to what causes this cardiovascular collapse. Now, propofol has a direct effect causing bradycardia, and it does this by inhibiting the sympathetic nervous system more than the parasympathetic nervous system. You keep in mind that sympathetic nervous system speeds up, parasympathetic slows it down. If you're just uh, decreasing the the sympathetic nervous system, you're going to have increased parasympathetic tone, and that's going to result in some Um, uh, bradycardia. Uh, also decreases uh, uh, cardiac contractility or the strength of the muscle contraction. And it does this by antagonism of beta receptors and calcium channels. So basically, if you were to think about from uh, the use of other uh, cardiovascular agents that we use commonly in the intensive care unit, propofol acts basically as a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker in one drug. There's also peripheral and cardiac muscle necrosis uh, due to an imbalance between cellular energy production as well as utilization of excess serum fatty acids are also arrhythmogenic, thus predisposing these patients to cardiovascular instability as well as development of arrhythmias. We've already mentioned that elevated levels of catecholamines, both endogenous and exogenous, seem to predispose uh, to um, Uh, propofol-related infusion syndrome, and they also seem to uh, contribute to some of the uh, stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Uh, Again, the catecholamine infusions as well as high catecholamine states occurring uh, from things such as burns, trauma, and sepsis. Now, it may be possible to prevent propofol-related infusion syndrome in the ICU by maintaining adequate carbohydrate supplies, limiting excess lipid load, or using alternative methods of sedation. And again, that you know, just because you have a patient on propofol and they have a lactic acidosis, there are things that occur with a greater frequency that cause an acidosis other than propofol-related infusion syndrome. And you have to shake down those differential diagnoses, and that could be from anything that causes a decreased oxygen delivery, uh, such as hypovolemia, cardiogenic shock, septic shock, severe anemia, severe hypoxia, carbon monoxide poisoning, or ischemic uh, tissue. Uh, from either bowel or extremity, um, uh, necrosis. Now, lactic acidosis can also be caused by increased oxygen demands that occur such as uh, during things like exercises or seizures or shivering or malignant hyperthermia. Now, finally, conditions that interfere with oxygen utilization can cause lactic acidosis. These conditions include things like systemic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as SIRS, diabetes, malignancy, Uh, TPN, if you've got thiamine deficiency, congenital lactic acidosis, mitochondrial myopathy, certain drugs or toxins, um, including drugs like metformin, nitroprusside alcohol, uh, propylene glycol, salicylates. These are also known as type 2 lactic acidosis. The signs and symptoms of lactic acidosis can be significantly variable and and nonspecific and include things such as tachycardia, hypotension, tachypnea, altered metal status. Typically, the treatment for propofol-related infusion syndrome is really supportive. You're, you're really kind of batting down in hatches, waiting for the storm to kind of clear. But what you're doing is, is, is supportive type of care. Clearly, the propofol has to be stopped, um, and you need to provide cardiorespiratory support as required. Uh, there has been some cases where hemodialysis and hemofiltration has been shown to be beneficial. Unfortunately, um, uh, propofol-related infusion syndrome is often refractory to the use of things such as IV fluids and inotropes. And there has been some limited success uh, with the use of cardiac pacing and a few successful reports, uh, case-by-case reports of the use of ECMO. So other things that are going on in the the podcast, we uh, have IC rounds. There's also two other podcasts that I produce that are also free to download from iTunes. One is Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. That's a companion podcast from my book of the same title. Uh, focused mostly on pharmacology uh, for the use of paramedics and people who are providing pre-hospital care. However, if you are a nurse or physician, uh, I do think that a lot of the topics are very germane to daily practices in the intensive care unit or the emergency department. And finally, if you're into trauma, there's the PHTLS or Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, which is a companion podcast to one of my other projects. Uh, I'm a medical director for uh, phtls uh, which is a worldwide program providing uh, pre-hospital trauma training for physicians nurses medics and military personnel around the world and we go through various topics there in pre-hospital trauma care the podcast is clearly available for free uh, from itunes wizard media has produced uh, some applications for download which allows you to demand all or to uh, download all the podcasts on demand Uh, Carry them in your pocket, and that is available through the iTunes store. I believe the fee for that is $1.99, and that's again through Wizard Media. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.